You're listening to How You Create with Ben Terry and Joshua John Marie. Alex Matisse, East Fork Pottery, so excited to have you joining us this morning. Um, first, for the people who don't know, can you just give us a high level? I know there's so much information out there about your story <laughs> and East Fork's story, but like, how do you synthesize down who is Alex Matisse, your connection to East Fork, and you starting it back in 2009? Like, give us that high level introduction to to you and the company. Sure. Um, so I started East Fork after three years of very formal apprenticeship and started it as a potter. Um, and I started it in the sort of the, the framework that I'd been taught, which was um, you find a rural property and you build kind of a rudimentary workshop and a big wood burning kiln and you start making pots and selling them to a collector base that was kind of built into North Carolina. So started building things, met Connie. Uh, we'd sit around this wood stove trying to figure out what to call it. I had a lot of really horrible names and eventually settled on um, East Fork because it was the community that the, the the area that we were living in, this very rural sort of township. Um, and yeah, for the in the beginning, it was a traditional North Carolina wood-fired pottery, um, making pots, selling them to collectors, having kiln openings. Um, eventually, a friend who was kind of going through the same apprenticeship canon that I had been through, uh, reached out and said, what do you think about working together? Um, I loved the idea. I liked the idea of doing something different. Uh, I think maybe I had already started to look at a long future of, of doing the same thing and feeling a sort of tug to do something a little different. So um, John moved out. We started making work together under the name of East Fork, but we would each stamp our pots individually. And uh, people didn't really sort of get it at first. You know, what are these two people doing making work together? It's it's usually about an individual pursuit. It's like uh, Alex Matisse pottery or Mark Hewitt pottery or whatever. You mm. know, um, but but people people were into it. They would come out, they'd buy the stuff, and then um, Connie started to become more involved at that point and would kind of follow us around with a camera and put it on Instagram. We started selling some things online. I built a little Squarespace website. Um, and we started to do that. We started to read too about all of these potters in all of the big metros in LA and New York that were getting written up in T Magazine and in in sort of they were they were in front of a very different audience. And and we saw that and we were sort of a little bitter because we had kind of devoted our whole life to this thing and gone through this very, very sort of strict regimented formal apprenticeship. And these were folks that in our eyes, you know, were pretty sort of early in the, in the career or we were just like, we want to be part of that. We, we think we have something to contribute because our collector base was so niche and, and much older too. And we didn't see that really growing. We didn't see a next generation coming in behind them necessarily. So we made this line that was going to be fired in a gas kiln, which was completely different from the wood fired process. Um, the metaphor I use over and over is it's sort of like going from a Conestoga wagon to a Tesla. Like they, they both move you through time and space, but in very different formats. So um, 
we bought this gas kiln that was automated and designed this you line. Built the first one, right? Yeah, the first kiln I built that was sort of what you do, what potters do. They build the wood kiln themselves. Um, and it was very large. You could only fire it three times a year, um, three or four maybe. Um, and, and we had some early projects where we were trying to sort of get our feet outside of North Carolina um, that really drove home the need for us to change mm. some of our processes. We did a project with Calvin Klein Home where we made these large pots for them and had to get them samples and fill out the vendor agreements and do all this stuff that was so outside of our experience. Um, we had to fire the kiln in the middle of winter, half full, and then I had to drive the pots up there overnight to get them there on deadline. It was just like, it was, it was a mess. It was just a total mess. And we realized like we needed to change something if we mm. wanted to do this. So, so we bought that gas kiln and um, we started to make this line. And the first time we kind of announced the the release of this this new line of pottery that was not decorated, that was not fired in the traditional way, um, we sent out our postcards to our mailing, mailing list and nobody showed up like the entire day, maybe four or five people came out to poke around and see what we were doing. So we lost our collector base, the people that had supported us up until that point, essentially overnight. Um, Do you think and, that was solely because of using gas versus the wood fire? Or have you ever been like been able to pinpoint what that was? Yeah. The, the pots were so different hmm. in appearance. You know, they were, they were, colorful uh but they were just a single matte glaze and they were minimal they didn't have the decoration they didn't have the sort of rich surfaces that the wood kiln imparts as part of that process right. so it was a completely different body of work and people just did not know what to make of it because it was contemporary and it was all of these things it was still hand hand thrown at that point in time right like it was so different um and so i don't blame them um Eventually, things started to change, um, and we sort of forced our forced our way into it. Um, we we ended up opening a little store in downtown Asheville where we would display the stuff, and we displayed it amongst other useful objects for the home, mm. other kitchen kitchenware objects, and um, that had a design sensibility. Um, and then the Instagram kept growing, and we sort of rode that algorithm, and Connie started to tell that story in um, a, a way that was really resonating with people and East Fork started, started to grow. Yeah. I'm interested in stepping back just a little bit, but you all sent out postcards to your customer base, which I find uh, really interesting. Where did that idea come from and did it work? Is it still happening or where did it bloom from? That was early on. That's just what potters did. Yeah. Like, and, and still do, you know, you've got a mailing list of a couple hundred people, you know, sometimes a thousand people and, um, and you send out a postcard and you say, all right, here's the dates of the kiln opening. And it has a little map on the back of how to get there and folks, um, show up. So that was just like, I, I, that's what all the people that I had worked for did. And that's what we did in those, in those early days, everybody would just send out, their um, their postcards and then and have an email list too and that people started to do that but that was left you know people have been doing that for for a long time um, so and and now obviously we don't actually 
send out mailings, but it's something we'd like to do in the future is like catalog and all that stuff that yeah. brands do. Um, Cause there's not a lot of investment in advertising or Facebook ads or kind of marketing outside of what happens internally with East Fork, right? Well, so now we definitely, we do advertise. Yeah. Um, we don't advertise a lot. We we've grown significantly over the years and that growth has been for the most part organic. So um, yeah, last year we spent a minuscule amount on advertising compared to other brands that are sort of our size. And this year we'll spend more on advertising. Um, we definitely de-emphasize Facebook. We don't love, we, you know, we're, we're a values driven company. We try to keep, um, sort of how we're doing things at the forefront, um, whether that's decisions we make about um, how we structure employment or or where we put our money. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you've, because um, there's, there's a big transition that's had to happen, right, where you were um, at the forefront of making these pieces and now you're kind of in a position where you're a leader and you're in a, C- a CEO. And do you feel like you've had to suppress any of your creativity or do you feel like that's still um, available and accessible to you? It's interesting. I mean, for a long time, I had kind of a canned answer, which was the creative pursuit has just changed. Like the the output is just different. Right. Um, and there is a lot of creativity that comes in the design of a business, the design of an organization, um, how you respond in times of adversity, how, how you lead all of these things. Um, lately I've been feeling just little sort of inklings of a, a desire for maybe a simpler format, uh, of that creativity or to come in a more traditional sense, like making, um, I, I still don't have a whole lot of time for that. Yeah. But it's, it certainly is, there's something there. I, I don't think I'll go back to being a potter necessarily, but, um, but yeah, I do miss it sometimes. And sometimes I miss it just because it's, it's simpler in, yeah. in some senses and, um, and running a business can be heavy and hard obviously. And, um, and so sometimes I wonder if I'm, you know, if that's sort of core to my nature, um, right. If I've fallen into it or how long, how long I'll do it. But for now it feels right. And I just stepped back into the role of CEO um, after um, a hiatus where my wife, Connie was our CEO. Um, so she's stepping sort of out of day-to-day operations, still be involved in the organization, but, but not in a day-to-day capacity. So we're navigating a lot of change, a lot yeah. of transition. Um, and it's, it's scary, exciting, sad, all these things. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, what piece of that feels um, kind of like the biggest piece to chew right now in that navigation? Because I know that transition was recent. Um, New York Times did a big kind of piece about this. What feels like the biggest uh, piece that you're trying to, to navigate and chew off right now? I mean, right now it's um, it's going into a year with a lot of unknowns and a lot of kind of what feel like headwinds. Or, or projected headwinds. So uh, we made it through COVID. Yeah, uh, we did it in a way that felt true to East Fork's ethos, our mission, our vision, our values. Um, and 
and then we thrived on the backside of it because company homeware brands were were thriving. I mean, a lot of a lot of stuff was taking off. Outdoor industry was taking off all of these things, and people had money, uh, and they were spending it, and they were investing right. in in their homes because they were spending a lot of time in their homes. So, so we really thrived through that. And now we're looking at the sort of the repercussions of that stimulus spending. Um, we're looking at that. Um, yeah, basically, we're, we're unsure how how our customers will will respond, how they'll be affected, and how that flows down to the business. So um, right now, it's a little bit of a sort of battening up the hatches right. to move into um, a, a real focus on profitability, which which we've had for a few years now, but we've just been right on the edge of it. So um, that's 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 my focus right now. Um, and then, and then, obviously, navigating leadership changes and cultural changes in the organization, which are which are inevitable with with a change in leadership. Uh, and I'm in a I'm personally in a very different space than I was um, before. You know, Connie and John and I, we ran the organization, or I ran the organization as CEO in a f- sort of very flat format. So. Um, a lot of the decision making was was really sort of a reached by consensus. Um, it doesn't always work, um, and we had a lot of struggles early, early on. Um, and it's really hard to run a business with your spouse. Um, right, it can be really rewarding, really hard. Yeah, we, we made it through uh, somehow, um, and and here we are now. So, um, yeah, one of the things that. I know Ben and I both admire is this workplace culture that you've really developed. Um, and I think you've, you've spoken about Patagonia uh, kind of being an inspiration in, in some um, aspects, but uh, share a little bit about how you're taking what is a blue collar job and really making it um, just a sustainable um, place to work. Yeah. Um, we've, I mean, it's, John, Connie, myself, we're not business people. We were artists, activists, cooks, writers, craftspeople. Um, so from the beginning, we there was just no no desire to to or or even no knowledge of like of 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 what a more traditional workplace looks like. Um, we wanted a place that was that people enjoyed coming to, and and we still do. Um, I think at times we've kind of gone overboard sometimes, and we've promised too much. Yeah, uh, that the company can give, and I mean, in general, it's it's been animated by this kind of open and earnest striving to to do the best that we can to, yeah, design a workplace where people feel. Um, feel cared for, feel heard, feel valued, are able to show up in whatever version of their authentic selves that is. Um, it's really hard. It's yeah. hard because at the end of the, it is also still work. Like, yeah, right. It yeah. is also still work. So so I think of like growing a business, you have different seasons of it and we're entering another season. And, and I think that uh, – There'll certainly be some sort of cultural changes, and and right now we it's sort of like a season of buckling down a little bit, and um, it, you know, if, yeah, it's 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 really interesting. I think um, people also then hold you to really high standards, right? Which is really good. 
um, it's really good and they expect a lot. Um, so we, um, yeah, I mean, we did, we did, uh, you know, like little things like from way back early on, um, when we were out at the pottery, we would cook lunch for folks right? and every day somebody would go down and they would, um, cook lunch for the team. And then the rest of the team would come down and we would pay for the groceries, but a different person would cook every day. Uh, cause we were out in the country and, um, this is how we did it. Um, and that was this really sweet tradition and we wanted to keep that. So we started to cook lunch for everybody and we hired somebody to cook and we built a commercial kitchen and, um, and then we had to stop doing that during COVID. Right. And we had a, then that sort of stayed on the back burner because of financial, um, for financial reasons. But that's something that I'm bringing back this year, um, hopefully. And it's, um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It, it just comes, I don't know if it comes natural. It just, it feels like the right way to, to, to do something. And I think it does come from the fact that again, we're not, we're not necessarily, we've grown into being business people and having the acumen and the skill sets that we have, but, um, but it didn't start that way. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah. I don't, does that answer the yeah, for sure. question in some roundabout way? I think Ben is back in here. Ben, can you hear us? Back, baby. You're back. Yeah. <laughs> Man, ho- hotel internet. What is going on? I feel like you just <laughs> ran to the nearest coffee shop and logged back on. Yeah. I did what any smart person does when they face technical challenges. I just restart my computer and then everything somehow started working again. So we're Good. back. Good. Uh, well, one question I wanted to ask you or to kind of kick off a lot of things is, you know, East Fork has like a cult falling of people when they get their mug or their plate. It's like a prized possession that they love. They use it multiple times for a lot of different things. They're trying to collect all different type of stuff. So I was really kind of curious, like for you, Alex, what's like a prized possession or this rare thing that you kind of have or own? And like, what's the story and the connection behind that piece for you? Yeah, I um, I was poking around the house uh, this morning, sort of picking up all of my little trinkets and objects. And uh, we live in a very small house, like this old cabin filled with objects. Like we 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 have so many. We collect collect beautiful things, useful things. Um, and I settled on this little cup that I'd made as an apprentice at Marks um, that is it's it's a small cup about the size of the sort of palm of my hand and it's it's shaped after a little um turkish teacup that are usually they're glass and it's a tulip shape uh so it can bulbous on the bottom and then it flares at the top and i loved that form and i made a few of them while i was an apprentice i haven't really made them since and the thing about at least my my pursuit of pottery and being a potter is it was this constant striving, this constant sort of reaching for an elusive, perfect form. And mm. that is made up by the the curve, the volume, the weight, the balance, and all of these things, every once in a while they come together. And um, you make a lot of you know, hopefully you make a lot of good pots. Um, 
you make a lot of mediocre pots and every once in a while you like you make one and it is it does it captures it's the that. one it's the like pot the, yeah it's the arrival and then you quickly have to move past it and you keep going and you keep searching and and that i mean that still exists at east fork but it's called continuous improvement and all these things that people <laughs> have written books about and all this stuff but um i picked up that pot because it's so simple it's not decorated um but it, it has all that it's sort of feather feather light um and and i like those those reminders like those 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 pots that i have lying around the house that that are those kind of those representations of some some kind of brief momentary arrival um hmm. at at perfection um yeah that's really cool did you make that did you mention did you make that during your apprenticeship or was that post or that was during my apprenticeship with mark hewitt uh hmm. that was the second apprenticeship that i did um, Mark's a potter uh, in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, um, south of Chapel Hill. And, um, and, and the apprenticeship is really, it's interesting because when you come in, it's not about your sort of self-expression. It's not about, it's not like free time to make what you want. It's, mm. it's very structured and very regimented, but towards the end, you do get a little bit more freedom. You get some expression. You can explore forms more on your own. Uh, they're still stamped with the the name of the maker or the name of the pottery on the bottom, um, but that was made towards the end of my apprenticeship um, when when Mark sort of gave me a little bit longer of a leash to start um, doing some of my own things. And then and then an interesting thing develops in that apprenticeship context where um, where the teacher you start bouncing ideas back and you start seeing how your own work is is in conversation with with the the person that you're working for and they'll start sort of grabbing things and it's like this playful conversation that can develop uh i think if the apprenticeship has been successful like towards the end of that mm -hmm. when you start to see that and, and i had those experiences at, at both of my apprenticeships where at the end it it really becomes this um this interesting little partnership um that exists over a, a few years um yeah. Are there any rhythms or practices from your apprenticeship that you would say kind of have helped contribute to the success of East Fork today? Mm. Um, you do, you do learn how to work, uh, pretty hard. Uh, these apprenticeships, both of the ones that I did were with wood fired potters. So you're spending a lot of time, uh, making glazes, making clay, cutting wood, stacking wood, cleaning the kiln, uh, doing a lot of what Mark called drudgery. And um, I think, I mean, really what that sets you up for is setting up your own wood-fired pottery because you know everything that it's going to take. Uh, there's enough time so that the romanticism wears off and you're you're entering it with clear eyes and, and you know what, what it'll take to do it. Um, I'm not sure that that question doesn't sort of immediately draw out an answer as to what how that affects what we do today. Um, I do think about economy of movement of something that that Mark always talked about, sort of how you set up a workstation, how you set up an area. And that you know, there's there's other you know, in industry, it's five S or you know all of these things. Um, but 
yeah, so that that definitely flows through when I see somebody with a, a rack of pots that's like 10 feet away from the kiln and they're walking back and forth to get it. It's like, well, no, just move that closer. <laughs> so you're just, you're doing a pivot instead. So things like that kind of yeah. do flow through and I still have, yeah. That's interesting to me, but I was in kind of like preparation for our interview. I was thinking about, you know, I know you're from the Northeast. You've kind of moved down to the Southeast when you kind of did your apprenticeship and stuff. And and the Southeast and more particularly like Asheville and North Carolina have really become part of who you are, who East Fork is. Um, it's, and it's so much of the story. And I was reading like some Robert Frost and Wendell Berry who have like this very strong connection to place and what that means. And I was kind of curious if, if you've thought much about place or if there's much of a connection, both the physical and spiritual side of like working with the ground and your hands and the things that you're kind of creating and how they're used at a table where there's like this whole, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of interesting things that feel very inspiring when I think about East Fork and the work that you do. Does that connect with you at all? Or are those things that you think about? Yeah, certainly. There's, there's a, a couple different levels that we can, explore that or talk about it. Um, it's really nice to get clay from where you work. Like mm. from a material standpoint, um, when we were making pots, we would I would blend our own clay with as many local materials as possible. So that, that sort of grounds it in place. Uh, you understand the materials, you're prospecting for them, you're digging them. Um, kind of across the state um, or sometimes just in the county that you're in. Um, so, so there's certainly a kind of, and, and that, that flows through. We want to keep our materials as local as possible for a lot of reasons, for environmental reasons. Um, now we have to use industrially mined materials, but we still want those to be from the Southeast. Um, the Southeast is important um, because there's, there has been for a long time, a lot of pottery made here. Um, and there are rich clay deposits across the Southeast. Um, so, so we're, we're lucky. I mean, that, that's, that's all part, that's all part of it. Uh, when we think about, um, how we sort of, um, how we direct our resources, what organizations we're supporting, um, we've really made a choice to focus on the community that we're based in. Hmm. So we don't, um, we don't raise money for or give money to uh, big organizations or organizations that are um, in other countries or even other areas. We really focus on our community. Um, so it's, it's supporting our employees um, and, who are here and it's supporting the folks that are doing the work to, um, to drive change, um, primarily from, from a social lens in, in our community. Um, so a lot of, a lot of that work is, is community-based. Um, we, uh, and, and certainly Asheville has, has held us and supported us for a long time. So, um, we'd, we'd love to continue being here. We have a long-term vision to, to build a campus and move our operations kind of under one roof. We're in a couple different spaces right now. And, and we'd love to do that in Asheville, but there are also, there's issues with Asheville that we're, we're talking about and we're trying to um, engage in, in 
you know, some of the, the work that's being done to find solutions, particularly around housing. Uh, mm. It's become an incredibly expensive place to live. Um, one of the things we did internally to, to address that was raise our minimum wage to $22 an hour, which at the time was the MIT living wage um, for the area for a family of two with two children, two working parents, two children. Uh, now that has jumped up, I think it's 25, mm. uh, if not a little bit more. Um, and so we want to be in a place where the business model supports folks to to live a life where they're where they're thriving. And um, if the cost of housing continues to rise, that's really hard to do uh, because there's there's just business realities that that limit um, how much we can pay. Uh, we've invested a lot in automation and all these things that are kind of big, scary words for some people. Um, and that's to ensure that our margins will support us to continue to, to be able to pay our folks um, enough money that they can, you know, not just not just live here, but thrive here. Um, that's that's the goal. Um, it's it's something that is a sort of again, it's a, a continuous process. And yeah. that bar keeps moving further and further out. Um, but yeah. Yeah, you have this tagline on the website around East Fork is a vessel for, and it's kind of like a blank and it rotates through some different words. Uh, mm -hmm. And I know you all are kind of registered as a B Corp and you've talked a little bit about like the social things that are really um, passionate to, to you and your team. And so there's there's a strong social focus and you're balancing this act of also having a business model that kind of works and supports those initiatives at the same time. But it seems like at the core, there's a lot of like, even when you're thinking about the mugs that you've made, as you've talked about that, there's a real human centeredness to a lot of the work and the design. Um, why, why is that important to you as kind of like, you know, a CEO uh, or the one leading this organization, but then also as a creator yourself to be thinking about the impact it has on, on your employees, the people who use your stuff, like is human centeredness, like a core or something you think about a lot? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Um, it, it sort of comes back to a, a similar answer to the to the um, to the question you asked earlier, which is um, we, John, Connie, and I are kind of like, yeah, always always striving to do something a little bit differently to approach problems with a different answer uh, than than the a more traditional one, um, and. We want to we want to feel good about about the the organization that we're growing. Um, mm. We want to recognize the the ways that the capitalist framework causes a whole lot of harm, um, and you know we go back and forth. Like growing a business is um, is you know there, there's there's parts of it that are extractive and are always you know if if it's a for profit business and if you want it to be around for a really long time it's this kind of balancing act between that and you're always in tension with it. Um, and I think that's what we do. That's what we do well is we hold that tension and we hold that space and we continue to sort of struggle against it and wrestle with the decisions that we're making. And, um, uh, you know, from a, from a strictly design perspective, there's the design of the pots. Uh, we think they're beautiful pieces. We think they, they really stand out. They were designed by potters. They weren't designed by an industrial designer. Um, 
they have a weight, they have a balance, a heft to them. Um, they have a formal quality that I think is really is unique, is interesting in the sort of industrial canon. You know, when you put it against all of the other industrially produced dinnerware, um, that mug, the design of the handle was, you know, it took us a year and a half to to figure out how to make that handle feel the way that it feels. It kind of mimics the feeling of a hand pulled handle. Um, it sits in your hand in just the right way, and people really resonate with it. So it's a it's a great product. Um, and then on the back side of it, people, customers, they really, they really like, like they see the struggle that we go through. They see us trying to do something in a different way, trying to do something in a better way, trying to think about, um, all of these decisions and wrestle with them, um, and, and come to a, uh, come to some conclusion that again, um, they resonate with and they can get behind and um and we continue to do that every day and it's not easy because you're not like you we are sort of increasingly faced with with harder decisions and um it's one of the biggest tensions i think that i've faced or that i'm facing is uh this notion of is a business a team or is a business a family and we've always called it a team but it's felt like a family. Like we've never really, um, we haven't really been able to move there. And, and it's, that's, that's been, that's been really challenging. I think, um, that's been a, that's been a tough one because, um, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I think a lot of people struggle with that, especially, you know, starting as a creative and then bringing on people in a team of like, uh, whether it's family or whether it's friends, like creating a business together and then trying to scale it once you grow that family to more people. Uh, you know, there's, there's this like Venn diagram in my head of like, you've got the creative, you've got the business and you've got the, the, the good that you want to do. And they're always kind of moving in this tension of sometimes I have to compromise on the creative side because the business model won't support that endeavor. Or sometimes we need a compromise on the business because it doesn't keep at the center what we want to do for people at the same time. And that's, that's a heavy tension, but it's a good tension to kind of lean into and work towards. And, and it's just amazing how you've kind of accepted all of those kind of realities and still kind of working through it. Like after so many years, what are some of the lessons learned trying to live within those tensions? Like what would you tell like your younger self to do differently or to lean more into? Hmm. That's a hard one. What would I tell? That's a big self? question. Only yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think. Um, I mean, there's times when I'm like, God, it'd be nice to sort of have a a, a more normal business or a business where uh, it wasn't sort of so emotionally fraught all the time, and uh, we we maybe had some, some harder boundaries. I think in the early, in the early days, especially that was, that transition was hard, um, to, to go from, yeah, from, from, uh, an organization where it's all friends and you hang out together, you hang out all after work and, and that eventually that, if that shifts and that changes, um, but, but drawing some clear boundaries around, okay, here's what the business can provide to you and here's what it cannot um, the business is not responsible for your your sort of personal happiness that it's gonna 
these are the things that we can do um, to ensure that you you have agency while, while you are here during the hours that you're working here that you um, that you feel supported and that you feel resourced but but really understanding sort of what what can you help how can you help people and how can you not help folks um, because we spend a lot of time um, we've spent some time like helping folks that didn't want to sort of extend that hand out maybe uh, in in uh, in return um, and sort of commit to that kind of mutual handshake um, letting understanding when to let folks go like that's the hardest that's the hardest yeah. part of the entire mm-hmm. thing like that's the stuff that's the thing I struggle with the most like that's I is the least favorite part of, of running an organization uh, we've not been super yeah it's that's that's the part to me that just sucks yeah and that's that's why I'm like well you know um, there's a ruthlessness to business that mm. we have never just it just obviously does it's yeah we've never gotten used to it when those when those moments sort of need to come it's just the that's where the human the human side that's where um, it it comes out um, in, yeah. in times when when sometimes it, you just you need to make a decision um, for for the long term sort of health sustainability growth right? yeah there's this tension between that you're kind of explaining of um, you know um, leading a team but you've also had to navigate um, business partnerships like you you were on your own for a long time uh, and then Connie and then John um, joined as well um, what advice would you give um, to someone maybe exploring business partnerships what what are like some uh, some cautions and, and things to look out for um, that you would share we got really lucky we got really really lucky all three of us got really lucky I think mm-hmm. because the th- we each had a different skill set that we brought to bear. Uh, we, we, yeah, we each contributed something that the other um, didn't necessarily have. John made sure we had incredibly deliberate financials. We didn't run out of money. Our, our models were are beautiful, mm. tight. Um, he brought that rigor that neither of us had. Connie brought the the storytelling, the passion, the, um, a lot of creative direction, um, a lot of, uh, how, how we're communicating what we're doing to our customers. And she resonated in this way with folks that was just like unbelievable. I mean, people sort of say, well, that, you know, she's an expert marketer. She's all these things. She's just, she's just so, um, sincere is the word we use a lot, um, versus authentic, which a lot of companies hmm. are trying to cultivate an authenticity and it's really hard to it's it's a losing proposition um but she just spoke to people in this way that that they really resonated with yeah um and what do you feel I like provided, yeah you bring to the table what do you feel like you you offer and i brought the the big vision of like look we can come together and we can do something of scale we can do something of some size. We can make an impact. Like that's why I always had this this hunger to do something um, of some scale to like leave some some positive, hopefully, impression on the world. Um, and I didn't know in what format that would take. I think a lot of that comes from some some family history, some ego stuff, some shadow stuff that I have. Um, but yeah, so I I sort of 
sometimes refer myself as the the little scrappy sled dog right from the pack. <laughs> that's not really like pulling a whole lot all the time, but it's really providing the the um, providing some of the inspiration and that forward movement. And that's that's what's been you know challenging about this transition is I think I did a really good job you know of of in those in the early years of of getting everybody excited and pulling them along. And now the organization is at a at a, a scale and a size where both uh, Connie and John are realizing that like they you know want maybe something else out of life like the the scale like what what the organization needs now or what it's wanting to do is is not in line with with what they want you know mm. I mean Connie's Connie's really sort of has a um, an interesting relationship with the you know the fact that like we are a capitalist business in a capitalist framework mm. uh, and and seeing sort of believing much more and 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 really settling into a sort of a degrowth mindset and like a why do we have to grow and I always had this like we're going to be this big we're going to grow we're going to grow and everybody's like well why are you going to grow mm. which is a great question that I'm still answering. Um, right now there's realities of why we need to grow. We need to uh, be sustainable from a financial standpoint. Um, we raised money. Uh, and when we did that, you're signing up for something. Yeah. Um, and so I feel a lot of, a lot of different, there's a lot of different sort of reasons behind that, but um, yeah. Man, there are so many like threads that I just like want to pull as you're kind of talking, Alex. And yeah. I think if people are listening to this, they're probably hearing, perhaps they're hearing like, man, Alex is a businessman who's really trying to figure out how to run East Fork in this company. You've raised money. But you, I think it's important to remember like you started off in the pottery making and I've heard you describe yourself before as not an artist. And so I was kind of curious to even kind of talk through a little bit of like people might be hearing that you're this businessman with this really beautiful pottery making business but you started off really trying to perfect your craft in in making the pottery side so i'm i'm curious for you to describe your relationship with art you, you describe yourself not as an artist how, how do you describe yourself alex back then versus alex now and, and what's been your relationship with creativity and craft and art and all those different things because it feels like that's another tension in your life as well too yeah yeah i i've always had a, a pretty conflicted sort of relationship with the title of an artist. Uh, a lot of folks in my family have had a conflicted relationship with that. Um, my father is an artist, but he also refers to himself as an inventor. Um, going back to, to Matisse, um, there was a feeling that there was not really room for for anybody else to be an artist. Like he was so passionate, so driven, so focused on what he did. It was really hard for somebody to come up uh, alongside that. And he was not, he was so critical of himself. He was so passionate and focused on what he was doing. They're just, he wasn't like a supportive father in, in that sense. I mean, he was very supportive, I think in a lot of ways, but it was really hard for, for his kids um, to be an artist, to pursue something in that shadow. So I felt that shadow really intensely. 
Uh, I don't know why I felt it more than, than say some other folks in the family. My sister is a painter, uh, and an artist in New York city, and she has a much lighter relationship with, with the name, with the lineage. Um, my father sort of carried a lot of that weight as well. Um, he made his work. He never really tried to commercialize on it. He didn't feel that that was like, that was always something that was kind of drilled into us was like, you just need to make the work. You just mm. need to do it. And if, if you're lucky, uh, it'll be good and people will respond to it and what comes will come. But if you put the money first, you're, you know, it's, it's, it's you're fake. It's bad. You're doomed. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I don't necessarily believe, uh, anymore, but I being creative was always encouraged. Uh, my, my father was, and, and my mother, who's also an artist, was they were super encouraging of whatever we wanted to do for the most part. He was not so co- encouraging of me when I uh, started working in a garage in college and was afraid that I was going <laughs> to be a mechanic uh, because he's whatever, you know, has his own baggage. Um, yeah. But uh, so I've always had that, that, that fear of, of being an artist, of calling myself an artist. I don't paint. I sort of joke that like I, I it's like, I do not paint. Like I will not pick up a paintbrush. Um, but craft was something different. Craft enabled uh, me to access a level of creativity and a level of mastery. Um, and there was the utilitarian aspect, which I just loved. I loved the combination of of the utility and the beauty um, together. Um, my grandparents on my mother's side were anthropologists. Um, and they would always bring back objects that were, uh, most of them were functional, not all of them, but a lot of them were functional. And I always gravitated towards those. So I, I just loved the utility of things. I like, I liked building things. I'd worked, a, I'd worked in construction throughout high school. Um, and, and after, so to me, that was the perfect marriage and clay specifically was this beautiful thing where, you know, you, you would build the environment around you that lets you make the thing. You build your studio, you build your kiln, you make the clay. You're sort of part of every stage of the process. And I loved that. Mm. Um, I still do. Uh, and, and part of that process is like real physical work when you fire it and you transform it. And some of it is just like the, the pure making, but there was this, um, there's this real sort of rhythm to, to being a potter that I loved. Um, and, it was like an all-encompassing life mm. that, that you would build to do that work. Um, uh, now, obviously, it's very different. But What do you, now that you have your own children, what um, advice do you hope to instill in them as they begin their own creative journeys? Because you, you talked about growing up how uh, your parents were, you know, hey, be quiet and just do the work that you love. So now that you have your own children, what, what do you hope to instill in their creative journey? Mm. I mean... Our kids definitely paint all the time and I'm <laughs> super supportive of it. And Connie paints with them and, uh, is it two, they you love have two to make our two girls, two girls, yeah. Yeah, yeah, two girls, five and seven. Um, and yeah, we, we just try to instill confidence and shower them with love and, and affection and all of those things that, that, uh, that a parent wants for their for their children uh and push them when they need to be pushed um uh 
and it's been hard. Like this business has taken a lot mm. out of Connie and I, you know, so Connie's really excited to have some more time to spend with them. And, um, and I am, am looking forward to sort of creating some boundaries where, where the business is not so all encompassing because those early years were, were hard. We weren't always there in the way that we wanted to be there. Um, Connie and I have been through some really, really hard times as a couple and the kids have, have picked up on that. So I'm, I'm just hoping, you know, it's like, sometimes I think it's just, uh, yeah. I mean, I hope they, they can forgive us. Um, yeah. And I'm sure they will, but, um, are they, yeah. are they close to, um, like what you all are doing? Like, do they understand this like pottery empire that's being built or for them is it just like this is a cool cup no they 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 certainly do they yeah they they do and they kind of roll their eyes at it and um but it is a really cool cup i mean that mug is like i kid you not when people when you talk about like holding the mug the right weight the right handle and like i get i take it to like uh the coffee shop to like get my cup and like i'm complimented Mm -hmm. on it all the time like it really is like the mug and yeah, if yeah. if you don't have one this is the plug right now to like go and buy an east fort mug uh yeah but yeah, yeah they, it's it's a cool mug they should be proud of that mug for sure thank you thank you yeah the the girls were out with connie at a restaurant that has our pottery and i don't know they started talking with the people next next at the table next summer they started talking with us and they're like what do you do and and connie's like oh i own a, a pottery a little pottery company in town and uh, Lucia just picks up on the plates and she goes, this, they make this, they make this right here. And they were like, oh my God, uh, he's for, you know, yeah. uh, so and the girls just kind of roll their eyes and it's obviously, it's going to, it's going to have some weight for them. It's going to be, mm, sure. there's going to be some baggage and some shadow around it, I'm sure. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about money because I feel like whenever a creative or an artist wants to go into something and sell something that they've made there's this weird tension in relationship with money mm-hmm. and you all have kind of raised money and, and i remember you and i chatted back in like i think it was like 2019 just around this idea of like raising money and mm-hmm. and what that even looks like and you're now on that side like how have how has your opinion of money changed in your relationship to it as it relates to like the business and what you want to do and you mentioned a little bit already of like, you want to be able to take care of your employees better than what most do in this mm. type of environment and, and work. But yeah, how, how are you thinking through money on a personal level and as a business level? Mm, that's a big one too. Um, I've always had a really weird relationship with money, huge amount of guilt around it. Um, never feel, I mean, I, I feel very comfortable talking about it, but um you know, in the beginning, like I bought that property because I had money, like I had family money. So there was, there was that, there was a kickstart there that basically very few people get, um, to sort of jumpstart that, that, that built the the pottery that sort of jumpstarted the, the initial thing. Um, and I had so much guilt around it and God, I don't know why I just was, you know, just swimming in that, in that shame, uh, shame puddle of, of, uh, of money stuff. And I've moved, I've certainly moved out of it, uh, now. Um, 
and and quickly realized that if we were going to actually do the thing that we wanted to do, it was going to take real money, big money. Um, and we never raised a huge amount of money, uh, comparatively speaking, to other organizations. When we when we realized that we needed to grow, um, we I can't remember what that first round was. Um, I think we raised a million dollars or something like that, which I think was that's a right. Huge amount of t- money at the time, um, and it was a it was an interesting process. And we got really lucky. Like we don't have any big VCs who have invested. We've got one kind of more traditional uh, partner out of England that is the kind of venture arm of a of a large uh, privately held um, organization, um, but with a very long time horizon. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, so the the money the thing that has that has certainly changed. I have a lot of funny feelings around it. I really uh, I'm always trying to lower our prices. I'm always trying to make the things more accessible, uh, increase our margin, mm. pay our people well. Also, like offer something at a lower price point uh, that's more accessible to a, a wider sort of a, a wider group. Um, as far as uh, balancing the 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 money internally, we um, just I mean I'm, we're going through it right now where um, we I I rebalanced some pay bands this year um, to actually increase the uh, comp that we're offering on the upper bands. We've done all the work that we've done has been to increase the comp on the on the bottom. So so up until this point, it's been raising that starting minimum wage um, up and up and up to get that really above market mm-hmm. for, our, for our area. But we were having a really hard time, you know, as the complexity of what we were doing was growing, um, attracting folks in uh, who were trying to, you know, leaving, leaving a job to come work for us. And, you know, people were looking at like taking a, a pretty massive salary cut. So mm-hmm. I've rebalanced that band and, and, um, and then we had to downgrade our revenue assumptions for the year. So we were stuck in this like really vicious cycle where, you know, Connie was leaving and I needed to, um, uh, I needed to, we needed to hire some, some sort of top talent to replace mm. Connie. And um, so rebalance the pay bands. And then with the forecast of the recession, uh, we downgraded our revenue assumptions for like, shit, what are we going to do now? Mm. <laughs> um, and, so we we try to take a different approach um, to to how we do things, and I slashed our marketing budget, uh, which was bigger than it had ever been. And you know, Connie and I have a loan to the company that um, that I just suspended the the payments on that loan and freed up enough cash um, to to let us kind of continue through this year in a way that felt really core to our values and our vision. Uh, without taking a traditional approach, mm, uh, which yeah. a lot of companies are doing right now, which is restructuring, downsizing, layoffs, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's that's how we're going to start things, and that's you know that's what we did in in COVID. We did the same exact thing, and we kept people on payroll, uh, kind of at all costs. Um, and where and- where is I know John is kind of like the financial advisor. Is are these conversations led by John, or like where are you having to? learn or kind of open up these conversations because i can't imagine that transition from kind of being an artist and you're like okay i gotta sell maybe like you know 15 pieces and now it's like these big budgets like where are you where are you getting your education or where are you kind of getting comfortable with with money right now 
We've learned it along the way. John, again, sort of John's has our, John's our CFO. Uh, so John manages all of it. Um, we have a great board that is really smart, really supportive. Um, there's other resources out there, but uh, we've learned it slowly over, yeah. the, over the years, over the last 10 years um, <clears throat> and gotten better and better. And again, like we're really fortunate that John has the, the acumen uh, that he has yeah. and um, yeah, it's amazing. We've, we've got everybody really needs a John. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. So, so, and, and those conversations happen. Yeah. As, as a founding team um, and we, we just hired a controller. Um, so. Yeah. yeah. I have to ask, are collaborations profitable? I noticed that they're um, maybe an increasing part of what you all are, are doing, but when you choose to collab with, with someone, does, does that, yield a financial kind of increase or is that more of exposure or is it just about um kind of that social impact that you've talked about as well we think about hot right now too everyone <laughs> loves a good collaboration they do they do um they are profitable and we think about them in kind of different formats um we have different scales of collaborations uh the the relationship we have with momofuku has been really amazing uh, and continues to deepen and grow. Uh, so it's it's exposing you to new folks, to new eyeballs, right? So there's the kind right. of co-marketing opportunities there. Um, and then if it's successful, it's a real it's a real revenue driver. Um, and and a lot of those have been have been super successful in that in that format. Um, so we're certainly leaning into that because it's a much more efficient way. Uh, to do customer acquisition than spending mm-hmm. on Facebook and doing all these things. Um, there's a lot more work that goes behind it as opposed to just turning on an ad or yeah. you know, doing that kind of stuff. Um, and we think really, really deeply about that and ensure that there's really good brand alignment, mm. that it's going to resonate with the audience, um, that we're vetting those partners, that all, all of these things. So there's a lot that goes behind it, but um, <clears throat> it's becoming increasingly a, a, a big part of our strategy. Yeah. Um, what would and, you what would you say for maybe a smaller company that's never done a collaboration before? Like, what's the first kind of piece to look out for um, to to maybe hopefully make it successful? I mean, this sounds pretty basic <clears throat> and a little harsh, but it was some advice somebody gave, which was like, either they're bigger than you or they're cooler than you. Like, there's they need to be <laughs> one one or the other. Like, more eyeballs, uh, or they've got to be really really cool. So. Uh, we guess we sort of use that framework a little bit. Um, but, uh, but also ensuring that it makes sense. Yeah. Like when people see it, is, are they going to, is it going to be like, Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's fun. That's unexpected. Um, yes. I yeah. love that piece, the unexpected where it's like, Oh, I never thought they would actually do something together, but now that they did it, it makes total sense that there's something like this in the world. Yeah. I think that's yeah. like really exciting. And a really exciting collaboration. Yeah. You know, in yeah. 2015, I there was an interview where you talked about how y'all didn't really have an advertising or marketing budget. And a lot of it was organic. And a lot of it was the success of Connie's uh, kind of like her being the voice and tone of East Fork and that um, authenticity that she kind of brought. And there was a lot of organic growth. Like how has your marketing spin and the tools you use and all those different things have kind of changed over time to help continue to scale East Fork up. Yeah, our marketing, um, 
we did not have a marketing budget early on and the the vast majority of our growth over the last few years has has certainly been organic mm. and it's been through the voice that connie's sort of breathed into the brand it's been through um a really beneficial kind of timing around the instagram algorithm and as we grew there and that was the instagram was like a really big platform for us and, and still is a big platform um so there was a lot of things that kind of all came together at once um that, that we had working in our favor and and there's there's luck in all of this stuff i think um so now we have a decent marketing budget it's not huge but it's 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 decent it's a lot better than we had uh we think a lot about where we're spending that money we want to de-emphasize facebook and instagram we still use it but we don't love giving them our money um we'd rather take out a full page ad in the new york times um that feels much more aligned um so so that has grown naturally but no we did not we never we didn't raise the kind of money that would allow us to 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 just like feed that that bonfire uh yeah which is what it is that a lot of these that's a good way do. to describe it it is a bonfire that you have to continually just keep adding to just mm -hmm. burning your cash and yeah 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 uh, and and then a lot of companies, you know, we've seen, especially with like these, the direct consumer brands, um, if you don't have a really good kind of unit economics, and like, how are you going to turn it to be profitable? If you're growing, if you're growing with like in a very unprofitable way, you're it's still the jury's out of whether or not you can you'll be able to turn that and actually keep those customers. And we have such high return rates. Um, once people come into the, the East Fork universe, they stick around. Mm. Um, they really, they really stick around. I mean, it, and it's because of the product and it's because of how we, how we choose to run the business. And, yeah. And um, you, I know, um, you know, even when the pandemic um, was going on, um, you saw an increase maybe because more people were just spending time at home um, and they, there was a place for them to have this beautiful pottery. What would you say um, is different about East Fork now um, as opposed to before the pandemic? And what's exciting to you about kind of the future of East Fork and, and some of the challenges that you all are facing as well? Yeah. Um, the pandemic was like the first big challenge that we faced. I think it was the first kind of reality wake-up call um where you know to, up until that point we had raised money we were growing 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 and um and then that happened and it forced it forced a lot of discipline it forced uh you know, it was sort of a reality check in some ways um we moved through it well and then we went sort of back into this growing 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 phase um and and now we're entering like another new season um mm where this year it's there's growth that's happening there's growth that's needed um we have a break even and that break even is means that we have to we have to grow a little bit mm. we're not but we're growing to get to the break even we're not growing just to to grow where right now this year is all about um is all about kind of survival and 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 ensuring that that's what we're doing. We've got the support of the investors and everything else. And like, it's really, we're not trying to, not certainly not trying to put money away this year. Uh, I mean, it'd be great if we did, but it's about, it's about making it through uh, and making it through 
in a way that is is as much aligned and in accordance with our our values as possible while while preserving that sort of that long-term vision of um of of health and stability and uh and success so yeah um we'll see i mean i'm embarking on what's sort of like the first 90 days of of my new tenure as ceo and i'm going to do a listening tour uh sort of with with the you know all of our stakeholders our our employees customers hmm. followers um partners and uh and so so we'll see there there certainly will be change um but it's yeah i'm i'm starting with that i'm starting with the listening yeah and then uh, what what did i hear what did i not hear um what what does the organize, organization need to move move forward hmm. yeah well, Alex, we're so thankful for your time. Um, you know, with all this change, I'm sure that probably increases your fly fishing activity to kind of give you some sort of mental break from all the challenges uh, that work and stuff provides. Is that like a big outlet for you? I mean, Asheville yeah. is like fly fishing kind of capital of the world in some ways. Like there's some really great streams down there. It's funny you brought that up. I stopped fly fishing. Um, Whoa! Breaking news. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still do it. I've got all my gear. Uh, in yeah. I do it like. Well, I don't really do it. I um, I stopped drinking uh, about fifteen, sixteen months ago. And when I stopped drinking, I started riding bikes. I started exercising. Hmm. And there's just oh, cool. there's just only so much time in the day. And so I um, that that's what I do now. Uh, when I have time and I don't, yeah, I haven't fished that much. Is it, I mean, it is something I'd love to have some time, but like there is yeah. just only so much time, but moving my body, uh, sort of reclaiming my body, um, in that transition was, was really important to me in a way that, that fly fishing sort of didn't, didn't give me that same. And, and certainly sitting on a boat, you know, going drifting down the stream, <laughs> uh, with a cooler beer. Is yeah. just not, not something that I was doing. So, um, so yeah, now it's really, it's, it's mountain biking, it's riding my gravel bike, it's doing all of that. And there's a great community here. Uh, a lot of my friends, that's, that's what they do. So that's been, I mean, that's being been in Asheville, life giving. Yeah. Like those sort of outdoor activities is like such a nice perk to kind of oh, be yeah. in that area of town too. So and I mean, it's crazy how much working out and like getting your heart rate up really releases a lot of the, the a lot of the tensions we've talked about that it sounds like you're really leaning into all that stuff. That's a great outlet to kind of release a lot of that stuff too. It's strong medicine and it is it's vitally important. It's pretty easy for me to neglect that sometimes. So that's kind of one of my core tenets that I'm trying to hold is uh is that that self-care. I've never been much one for self-care, uh, but that one's super important.